that I have chalk on my teeth now. I don't yeah. have my self-view camera on because I get distracted worrying about <laughs> how I look. So I turned that off. That's so lit. I appreciate your honesty. Uh, I'll be honest and say that uh, you'll see my eyes darting around because I will be having a conversation with myself, but you are all You got included. to. You got to do it. <laughs> it's kind of weird. It's almost comforting to see myself. It's like I'm looking at myself and thinking like, you got this. It's going to be okay. Even if I don't have this. <laughs> It is going to be okay. It's going to be better than okay because we're actually here to talk about a book right now. So we're going to talk about a book. Yeah, we're going to talk about a book. Um, Should we jump in? Yeah. Hi, hello. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Hey, Read This, a podcast where we have enthusiastic conversations about books with friends. I am one half of your co-hosting duo, Becca, and your other half is here on my Zoom screen. Victoria. That's her. And our friend today, <laughs> uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm Emily uh, Bush. I uh, I've worked with Victoria and Becca, and I am a book lover. So, Emily, what did we read? We read Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Oh, so good. Yes. And why this book? Well, okay. So I thought that perhaps I was being a bit basic or mainstream to bring Madeline Miller to our conversation. But then I heard that both of you had not read Song of Achilles. Becca, I know you have read, no, Victoria has read Circe, which now Becca, I'm sure you will be going to read her. I absolutely am going to read Circe. Like people have been telling me to for years and I've just been like, it's on the list. I'll get there. And yeah. now like, it, um, it's going to take restraint to keep me yeah. from reading it, quite frankly. <laughs> well, you uh, simply Circe must Yes. Song of Achilles came first. Song of Achilles was Madeline Miller's first book, the one that kind of broke the book talk. And then uh, Circe came after, but everyone always talks about Circe. And I feel like I never hear anyone talk about Song of Achilles. So let's talk about it. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I love this. And I'm so glad you brought us this book. Uh, mm -hmm. Should we do like first impressions and then we can start pulling out our little details and also do summaries and spoilers and stuff? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Um, my first impression was like, this is okay. Um, so I, I was like a wannabe Greek mythology kid when I was okay. younger. I like I, I got the books out of the library and I gave them a thorough like thumbing through. Yeah. But I had a lot of trouble like sinking into it. And mm -hmm. I feel like this is the experience of like reading Greek mythology that I wanted. There is a yes. moment where you're like, I'm just a mortal in this world walking around. Gods are real. They interact with us. And oh, my God, that's a centaur. You know, like it just like it was it was so human and also so extraordinary. And you yeah. just felt like you were just like wandering so through the olive groves and anything could happen. That was amazing. It was transporting. Yeah. Yeah. I I want to concur really quickly and just say that I was not at all a Greek mythology kid growing up. And it kind of like surprises me even when I look back, like now I have a really, really deep love for mythology, especially modern adaptations of it. And Becca, you put that so perfectly and so beautifully. It really did feel very transportive, perfect word. And it somehow feels both epic and relatable at mm -hmm. the same time. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I was a Greek mythology kid. I read the Percy Jackson books and was totally into those. And so I describe this to a lot of my friends as like Percy Jackson for adults. And and with the Percy Jackson TV series coming out now, I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is perfect. But I particularly loved this book and Circe because if you knew about Greek mythology, uh, Madeline Miller doesn't spell anything out for you. She's like, oh, and now we're meeting Chiron, who's just like a very famous Greek mythology figure. And now we he's just placed into our story like so. And it's even more so in Circe. Circe does that wonderfully as well. That's one of my favorite parts is that as I was reading, I was constantly having to like pull up the Wikipedia pages of like all of these different famous mortals and gods and characters Mm -hmm. from, you know, the Trojan War and all of that. And I was I was I I kind of love the like bonus learning and the bonus reading that came with reading and understanding the story. I do too. And and I feel like the thing that she did do, though, that like, I knew when like something would like ping as like, I should know something about about this like Mm. a little bit and like Mm. but and not in like a I need to go look it up right away way but like she just like very delicately foreshadows or like very delicately is like well this person you know who was uh another godson or something and you're like Odysseus and you're like oh my gosh Odysseus is in the story now that's great everyone knows Odysseus is one of my bullet points we have to talk about a bunch about Odysseus at some point yes and I was gonna mention like she's just so smart like even that line at the end where and spoiler alert when Odysseus is talking to Achilles son and he's like maybe I'll be more famous than you one day nod to the camera haha I was like Madeline girlfriend so good you cute you cute okay so since we can't get a uh I love this one too because we're like spoilers for Greek mythology Uh (laughs) (laughs) you've had time you've had time well but what's so cool about that is that like there is so much in here and so much that is like what is the myth and what is the fantasy of the myth and then also like the way that it unfolds the order that she puts things in and and the way that you're you're moved through the story like I almost feel more precious about revealing certain ways that she did that than I do stories that people have never heard of, which is kind of counterintuitive because you're all like, hey, he dies at the end. And you're like, well, yeah, he's Achilles. Like, Yeah, he's Achilles. (laughs) Oh, and we got to talk about Achilles heel. Oh, my goodness. Truly, yes. And then real quick, one thing, too, that I want to mention, because we're talking about, you know, like myth and fiction. But there's been some recent stuff about like the Trojan, like the Trojan War happened, right? And like a lot of these people actually did exist and like (laughs) demigods, gods. Okay, there's mythology elements, but Patroclus was a person. And there is like evidence that him and Achilles were partners. And it's been debated for centuries, which is, and then she wrote a book and it's beautiful. So yeah. Anybody want to take a stab at a summary? I can do one. So really, this is a romance. It is a Greek mythology, fictionalized kind of um, in language that is easy to understand, telling the story of Patroclus, who uh, was a a man, um, a a son of a king, a prince uh, who was exiled and then meets Achilles, the demigod from Greek mythology. And it is about their friendship, which uh, becomes love, and their journey to the be a part of the Trojan War, uh, to bring back Helen and to defeat 
Hector and Paris and war and their kind of experience with their um, unaccepted relationship during that time. Yeah. Yeah. And truly, I just want to pop in. I've said this to you before, Emily, and maybe to you, Becca. I think that the reason that I read Cersei right away is because I was like, oh, yes, a witchy female main character. Give it to mm-hmm. me, please. I will take it. Um, and I think that the reason I didn't kind of immediately jump to Song of Achilles is I was like, oh, it's a story about men and it's a story about war. I don't care about boys or war. <laughs> and um, yeah, I but I was I was so pleasantly surprised at how much I appreciated the lens that I think Madeline kind of puts on not just the male perspective in this time, but also perspective on war. Thank yeah. you for that beautiful summary. Also, Emily, that was great. Of course. And and Patroclus, like, man, we, we talk about men written by women, but they're always in the romantic context. What we want them to be for us romantically. This was a man written by a woman that just, I want all men to be. I want yeah. all men to be Patroclus. Yeah. Yes. And like, I mean, we have so many like hangups about like men written by women or women written by men and how they get it wrong right and it's like it is just his feelings and his situations like they are they are so as victoria said earlier epic and so relatable like Mm -hmm. on the one hand no i have no idea what it would be like to be an exiled prince nor in love in a forbidden relationship with the son of a god but also (laughs) like i totally do know what it's like to be in like a sea of your peers and be like please notice me oh god please don't notice me oh god please notice me i just want to touch you i don't understand it you know like like just those it's all so human it's just human it's all just so human a lot of patroclus's like reactions and feelings towards achilles especially to me felt so almost like genderless in a way they just felt so like naturally a part of the human experience regardless of maybe who you are where you come from how you identify especially like the feelings of just like profound adoration and love from knowing someone on like a really really deep level um yeah uh, it was very very satisfying to read I just also wanted to challenge like any homophobic person to read this book and not be rooting for them by the end like yeah it's just such a beauty it's not even about the fact that they're gay that's such a small part of it it's just love it's such deep earnest true first love that we all experience that we all have known you know it is that it is like this is a story of like two people like soulmates it's just about like it is about finding someone who understands you and who you can bond with like on a level that is transcendent um which is like what love is really always about i feel like is 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 finding that like transcendence a little bit two shadows coming together in the underworld oh god yes yes um before we go too much farther i do want to toss a a quick content warning out into the breeze um because we are dealing in the world of like greek mythology so this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that sexual assault and mentions of it are going to uh pepper this conversation because they pepper the mosaic of this but i'm gonna stop saying i'm gonna stop twisting my metaphors and just say that we are going to mention sexual assault because it is a part of the story um 
and not make it cute. Uh, and then also obviously violence, but like we already talked about the Trojan War, so like War. violence. <laughs> oh yeah. I will say too, one thing that I was really grateful about, both in the depictions of the violence and in the depictions of the sexual moments in the story, um, I'm not someone who particularly enjoys a lot of like super graphic things of either of those natures, uh, regardless of the sexes, like participants and all of that, right? Um, but I think that it was it was conveyed, particularly the sex scenes, right, were portrayed and conveyed with such like passion and sweetness and sincerity without being overly graphic mm -hmm. and descriptive yeah. in a way that I really appreciated. There is very little in this book that I would describe as gratuitous. There's nothing in this book I would describe as gratuitous, actually, um, uh, sexually or violent, violent um uh and like and i think that that is like a really fine line because she does um so for example to jump to jump into uh past the spoiler wall past the summary all of those Let's things jump in to jump into achilles parentage uh he mm -hmm. is he is born of a mortal man and a uh a goddess is his mother a sea nymph named Thetis, is that correct? Yeah, Thetis. Thetis. Um, I listened to the audiobook so I can help us out with some pronunciation. I am so glad that you did that because I was going to look goodness. them all up and then I didn't. So Same, same. But the gods have a prophecy that she will have a son that like is is the best, right? He just her son Achaeum or something, something like that. Yeah, he's gonna be the best of all. Best Greeks. of the Greeks, gonna be the yeah. coolest dude. Um, and so in like there's a little thing in the back too that tells us a little bit about this. That like I think it was like Poseidon and Zeus were like maybe we'll vie for her or something, and then they're like actually we're gonna trick her, uh, and they tell this mortal man where to find her and how to catch her and basically how to rape her so that she will bear his child and then that child is Achilles. And that is mentioned a couple of times uh, in a couple of different scenarios by different people and it is always kind of held with this it's a very delicate touch. It's it's just like a, a line here or there. You under so you understand what happened, but it's not gratuitous. But there are a couple of lines where like she makes sure to Im impress upon you the the hurt of that for Thetis mm -hmm. as well. That like not only was it the violation of of her, but that something was taken for from her. A choice was made about her offspring that she would never have uh, a say in. And and I, I think that like the way that Madeline Miller balanced both the gravity of that pain and loss in a story that is not really about her, um, while also kind of showing us how other, how much a piece of the world that kind of interaction is, and also how known that is by like the other characters, I think was all mm -hmm. just like a, a deft touch all around. Mm -hmm. I would completely agree with that. I think it was she paints beautiful pictures with her words. I have been reading a couple other fantasy books right now. Uh, that's kind of the genre I'm into. And they are beautiful. I mean, you know, they got their metaphors and they got their similes and the imagery and stuff. But then re-listening to the audiobook in preparation for talking today, because I, I read this book a while ago, um, I couldn't believe how well written it was i feel like there are books too and I, I think i'm starting to realize this partially through the project of this podcast but like when i say something is like 
well-written or tasty or evocative or something like it kind of falls into these like two categories there's things where like i talk about how to lose the time war all the time because of the way it has these like tasty word combinations and you're just like how did you make that with your brain yeah but but i see the words and i hear the words and i hear like the story through them and in this it's like i lost myself in her writing Mm -hmm. in a way where it's like I was never focused on a word. I was always focused on the image it was conjuring, which I think is a slightly different thing. No less valuable, amazing, beautiful. But like I was, I was fully, lo- yeah, I was fully lost in the image. There was no room for me to be like, ooh, tasty word choice, because I was just like, yeah, I am here. I am in this room. I am in the folds of this dress. I, I, I understand the feeling of the scene in a really tactile way. Mm-hmm. A word that I've been using to describe her her writing in my mind is sort of timeless in a way, mm-hmm. in the sense that it is so direct and it is so, I don't, I, I'm almost like loath to use the word simple because I think simple is not quite what I'm trying to convey. But she, as you said, Becca, she's not super gratuitous. She doesn't need to use a lot of super flowery poetic language. And yet there is a poetry to the directness of how she writes mm-hmm. and how um poignantly she's able to create a scene and create a moment with like just the perfect few precise words that she uses um and it doesn't feel particularly evocative of like any age it really does feel like we are in the time of this myth as well if that makes sense it does and that makes perfect sense based on okay i did not read enough about her honestly Uh, just in her bio she's like yes my whole thing is like taking the classics and adapting them for theater and stuff into like the contemporary world and you're just like yes and it is so clear that you are so good at that yeah this feels closer to me to like ancient greece than any of the history i've ever read i absolutely i have a i have a quick question it's kind of random do it Uh, but and okay, but did either of you see Saltburn? I have not. No, okay, so no, sorry. Never mind. No, no, no. I just okay. I didn't love it. I'll just say this real quick because you can cut this out. I don't love that movie. I kind of disliked that movie. But there was this interesting like two men that are like kind of in love, but one of them kind of has a leg up over the other one plot. And I watched that movie while I was reading the book, and I. It just was interesting, but yeah, oh. I would well, maybe watch it if you're interested. I can't, I can't speak to Saltburn, but I can speak to the fact that like the, what you just brought up, Emily, that kind of like the power dynamic between two characters, particularly characters who may or may not be in like a romantic or a sexual relationship. Like I was really pleasantly surprised. I, I went into this knowing, okay, it's going to be about Patroclus and Achilles. Achilles is its great hero. Patroclus is not a nobody, but like compared to Achilles, like kind of a nobody. <laughs> Certainly someone I hadn't heard of. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> not being a Greek mythology kid, TM, um, you know, not not anybody to me. So I was anticipating at the beginning of the book that there was going to be a point where the power dynamic would shift and the power imbalance would just feel really intense and really maybe potentially gross. And I don't think for me, we ever tipped into gross territory at all. It really did remain a relationship that I like admired. And even through like their hardest moments when Achilles is really going through his egotistical, I am the greatest of the Greeks, you know, <laughs> late in the war stuff. I, I even still found his rage relatable. Uh, yeah. yeah, we never tipped into super gross, like toxic masculinity, if you want to call it that, just toxic behavior. Well, they're young. It's such a young love. And I think that's part of it. 
is they are just boys. And I loved one of my favorite moments in the whole book was they're at war, they're at the war camp. And, you know, we've just gotten so many chapters of just their friendship and like being silly and getting to know each other and running on the beach and eating figs. And then we're at the war camp and you're kind of like, okay, well now they got to grow up. All that's going to go out the window. And then there's a scene where they're tossing all of pits at each other. And yeah. I was just like, oh, you're still boys. You're still young boys. I love, um, I think that is another like testament to her, to Madeline Miller's ability to like find these characters' voices. Because so like after they do uh, run away from Pythia and they go to the mountain uh, with Chiron. Um, yeah. And they're there. And like, those are some of my favorite chapters because they, they are just like so like wholesome yes. and lovely and like. My little cottagecore boys. Yes, I too would like to live in a rose quartz cave with a centaur and like learn about nature and poultices and go swimming in a creek. That sounds amazing. Let's do that, please. But as they're leaving, like they are like, well, we're, we are just going to go back and hear this thing out and then we'll make our peace and we'll leave. And in your head, or at least in my head, I'm like, I understand where this story is going. I understand that we are going to the Trojan War. I do know that that is the end game. However, at this point, I know that they're just going to get to go back to their mountain and they're going to we're going to have a few more chapters of playing in the river because they're so confident that that's going to happen at that point. And like that is also what makes it so heartbreaking is that you're just like I believe you. I so believe you despite the fact that I know you're wrong. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And just to go back to what we've been saying over and over again, like just not um, heavy handed. None, none, it's not heavy handed. And even them falling in love and their experiences with sexuality, that when they're back at with Achilles, you know, in Achilles, where Achilles lives, I can't remember where he lives. But um, when they're back at home at the castle and they or the palace and they are all the other boys are discovering their sexuality they're hitting puberty they're um having sex with the the women servants and they're just kind of uninterested i remember thinking like what are they discovering about themselves and then you get a little bit of that inside into patroclus when he's with chiron up in the up on the mountain and then his and Achilles union is just, it's not heavy handed. It's just beautiful and it's simple. And I just thought the way that she portrayed the worst parts of sex and the most beautiful parts of sex was wonderful. And the messy parts in between where you're not really sure, like there is, there's this whole scene. Um, so With Daydomia, are we going to talk about the Daydomia stuff? I, I think we should. I think we should. We have to, but I'm so confused by it. I'm so glad we're talking about yeah. it. Yeah, thank you. I am as well. Let's go on this journey. So I, I really liked that this part a lot. I, um, so there's okay. So there's a whole thing, and they're like, Achilles, you got to come do this war. And his mom is like, I would like you not to die yet. And Patroclus is like, I would super like you not to die yet, but no one's going to listen to me yet. Uh, and so he is taken. His mother basically like helps take him away and they take him to 
Skyros. Uh, Skyros, the island of Skyros, where he is disguised as one of the dancing maidens of Skyros or whatever, which are the yeah. dancing women, uh, which is like this, oh, people come from far and wide to see our dancing women. Um, and Patroclus, thinking he has lost him for good, just loses his freaking mind and is like, I'm going, I'm going to go get him. And so he does. And he goes and he gets him. Um, and he like sees him dance and and there's this whole blow up in the hall when he's like, wait, that's my wife, uh, like trying to like cover for him. And then eventually it all comes out. But in order to like sort of help save Achilles or whatever, behind everyone's back, the king and his goddess mother had Thetis had like sort of arranged for Achilles and Diadamia. Daedamia. Daedamia. Thank you. Daedamia to like be married and they have lain together and she is supposedly pregnant. Um, she is in fact pregnant. That becomes relevant, painfully relevant. Um, Very relevant. <laughs> too relevant. Anyway. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so that is like a thing and it, it doesn't really, I mean, it impacts their relationship, but it doesn't impact their relationship. Like they, they are open about these things. They talk about it, Achilles and Patroclus. Um, but then they have to stay in the castle and and sort of keep up the ruse. And so Patroclus is there under a fake name, being like sitting at the noble table, being like, yep, I'm here with my wife. Totally my wife. Definitely not a prince. And eventually kind of that all goes down the drain. But before it goes down the drain, before Odysseus comes smashing into the place, he doesn't smash. He's very diplomatic. There is this scene where... so. Oh my god, I'm sorry. I can't say her name. What is it again? Daedamia. I'll Day- type the pronunciation in the Day- chat. Daedamia. I've got it. I've got it in a note. Daedamia. Daedamia. She is going to be sent away because she's not really married to Achilles or at least not in a way that is going to become public. Uh, therefore, her being pregnant is a problem. So she's about to be sent away and she is justifiably upset, I would say, that A, this very attractive man who she thought was going to be her husband is not going to be her husband, does not care for her, and that has been made very clear. And that's a thing I think is really sweet. We get this insight into Patroclus being like, oh, I get it. Like, I know what it is like to be indifferent in his eyes, and it sucks. Um, and so, like, he feels for her, but she doesn't care. And so she she calls him to her, Patroclus, before she's about to leave kind of baiting him a little bit and then like makes a move on him and he's like whoa you don't want this and she's like actually i do and he's like no you super don't and maybe i don't but you super don't and she's like fuck you i'm a princess also i will tell everybody that you're in a gay relationship and that will be a problem for you and so she basically blackmails him into having sex with her and it is this like very kind of gross but not icky or icky but not gross like complicated scene where like it's patroclus's first time like seeing a woman naked but it's also like she is in charge of it and he doesn't really understand how he is being used but he knows he is being used and at the end of it he kind of just feels still sorry for her he still is just like I get that you needed to do this, whatever this was. And I would love, like, he tries, he like tries to like hold her and she's like, no, fuck you. And it is this very weird thing where it's just like, she is just so 
this like bundle of hurt. And this is, I feel like the only way she knows how to have control because it's the only thing she's been shown she has any control over. And it's very clear that she still doesn't have that control. She's still going to get sent away to have this baby and alone. And like, I don't know, it's sad and complicated and messy the way like, I think a lot of sex, even when you're not being blackmailed by a princess is, you know, and, and how (laughs) I, Hey, I'm, I'm very happy. I have a great relationship, but I gotta say that sex for women is difficult. It, it is, I, I remember the part where she talks about, um, where Patroclus says that she like, like grit her teeth, like prepared for pain. And I just think about how many women think that sex is painful, that they they think that's just how it is for them, that it's painful. And then it maybe is a little bit good, but it's mostly for the man anyways. And at the end, she, Patroclus says that it's clear that she didn't get something that she wanted. And I was curious, I've been thinking about what did she get that she didn't want? And I think there's so many different options one of the things I think was that she couldn't have Achilles and with the homophobic time that they lived in, that doesn't make sense to her that she can't have Achilles. And so I think her being with Patroclus is almost like her trying again to like have this man be attracted to her. And I know what that's like as a woman in our society to think, well, media and, you know, Victoria's Secret commercials have told me that my worth as a person is my sex appeal. And if a person is not sexually attracted to me, then where is my worth? What is my worth? Totally. And and I think yeah. that you're, I think it's totally that it's that like it's it's the proximity to something she can't have. Well, and I think that Didamia knows she's been raised in this very uh strict society where she has a very specific role to play and has very specific value assigned to her as we've all been just talking about and i think that she knows that she is probably going to be allowed a very limited spectrum of sexual experiences especially now that she's been sullied or whatever and by you know a man who's gotten her pregnant that she won't actually be allowed to claim as her own um so I don't know. Part of me wonders if kind of going back to what you were just saying a few seconds ago, Becca, like the idea that she's looking for something that Patroclus or Achilles can't give her, but she's just trying, she's reaching for it. She's looking for it. uh, Maybe not realizing until after she's reached for it or tried to have it that they can't give her the thing she's looking for. And it just sucks. And I mean, I don't know, maybe in her mind, she was like, okay, I'll sleep with this guy. He's going to fall madly in love with me. And then there will be a whole thing. And then Achilles will have to be public. About like, I'm yeah. sure like, there's a there's a million ways like she could have wanted that to go. But at the end of the day, it was never going to go any of those ways because I don't know. It, it's It's not mm-hmm. you don't really have a move here. There isn't a move here. It's yeah. just a bad situation. <laughs> And one thing I was a little bit curious about you all's thoughts on this, and I think this is a delicate, a delicate tightrope to walk. Um, so I want to be really careful talking about it. Uh, uh, you know, I I am bisexual, and I think that one thing that is really difficult is, you know, later we see his relationship with Brisea, mm-hmm. 
who it's unclear if he falls in love with or not. I I I think it's he says a couple times that he would be happy to spend a life with her. Um, and I wonder, you know, is there a bit of bisexuality in Patroclus's story? And when I was reading this section with Adamia, um, and now he could have been totally in a victim situation, like going along with what she wanted because he was a person with very little rights or control. Um, that might be totally the situation. I also was wondering if there was any part of it that he was like, well, Achilles got to experience this. I want to experience this. And if there was any part of that that was okay, or if it was purely a, a rape or sexual assault situation. No, I mean, I think he he in- intimates pretty pretty much in that section i think that he's like there is a section a, a segment of it where he's like he allows her to lead him to the chamber and there is mm-hmm. this like what did achilles think when he was in my scenario now you know like he's having those thoughts and i i do think that's a part of it i totally and i you know obviously we are talking about uh, the characters in this book, not the actual historical figures. Mm-hmm. But as far as like the characters as they are represented in this book, I do think there are shades of that. And I do think that like, I mean, I am also bisexual. Sexuality is a spectrum. I think that there are people who aren't necessarily just like driven by sex, but are interested in sex when it is attached to a relationship and to he emotion. He felt yes. demisexual. Yeah, that is true. I felt a little bit of that. And yeah. I feel like that is something that is represented here is it's like his feelings for Achilles are not purely sexual at any point, even when they're sexual. They're always about who he is. And mm. when they first save uh, Brisa, is that her name? Brisea. Brisea. When they first save Brisea, it's just... Oh, Briseis. Maybe Briseis. I, I think there is an S, right? Yeah, Versailles. Yeah. Like when they save her, that's there's this element of like making up for times they couldn't save other women in terrible situations. But also that like as that relationship grows, it is only after learning that she thinks of him that way or would be interested in being with him in that type of intimate way that he even considers it. And it is always wrapped, like, when he talks about her and his feelings about her and seeing a life with her, it is always kind of wrapped in these feelings of who he knows her to be as a person. Like, her softness is not just the softness of her skin. It is the softness of, like, her heart and the way they sit together when they make, I don't know, do herbalism and stuff. Um, (laughs) Which, yeah, which to your point, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree with that as well. And I also love the like the demisexual conversation kind of being brought into it because I was picking up on a lot of those shades as well. I think the only thing I have to add is really just to kind of reiterate the idea that like, for me, my entire experience of reading Patroclus's romantic feelings and sexual feelings throughout the book were a great reminder that I think that a person's for some people, maybe their sexuality feels really cut and dry, right? It feels steady or stagnant for the majority of their lives. And I think that other people, it can be a spectrum and it can grow and change as they grow and change. 
Um, and so I wonder if maybe that's a little bit of what what we see in Patroclus, if maybe by the time that he has, you know, lived so much life and felt so many things, he he meets Briseis and feels a different way about her than he might have when he was younger. I don't know. And there's also the element that they do bring up a little bit where he's just like, he is interested in having a relationship on like equal footing with someone. Uh, and like, he's like, the only women I've met are mostly like enslaved women so yeah. or princesses. So probably not super interested in doing anything with either of them. <laughs> and I mean, Briseis is really like only on his level because I mean, technically <laughs> she's an enslaved or ca- and captured woman. Uh, but I mean, personality and like not personality but just um emotionally connected the emotional connectedness is there and it's maybe the most emotionally connected he's been allowed to get to another woman also um while we're just on the topic of like sexuality and all these things uh in romance uh just because i can't think of another time to bring this up but guys figs figs yeah, sexiest fruit <laughs> in the world. Turns out. It is true. Actually, so my my partner and I, this is not going to be TMI, I promise. My partner and I, um, we read this book together. Um, we read Circe first and then we read this book afterwards. We do like, a, we sometimes read books at the same time. I and love that. we were at Trader Joe's, like right after reading this book in the fall and they had fresh figs. And I never thought I liked figs because I had only had like fig newtons and like dried figs. And so we we got some fresh figs and we washed them and we took them to the park. And they are amazing. They're so good. And I just I now think the aesthetic of figs is everything. <laughs> I am also a fig lover. Just throwing that out there. But yeah, figs and Song of Achilles. Go, Becca. I'm so sorry. No, you're good. I was going to say, I don't think I've ever actually eaten a fig, which is probably a problem I should fix. I need to make you guys my my fig toast. I have a fig toast recipe that I make that I really, really love. It's like figs and like, I think, I can't remember if it's cream cheese and um, honey and pistachios on toasted Mm -hmm. bread. Oh my God, you guys. It's so amazing. Yeah. Just got to say, figs are the sexiest fruit. We thought it was grapes. It's actually figs. Turns out. Turns out, yeah, shocking, shocking lack of grapes in this book, yeah. considering my stereotypical understandings of ancient Greece. So I'm going to say I don't I, I olives are technically a fruit. I don't really know what olives are technically considered. Olives are technically a fruit. Well, I'm stone I, fruit, right? Yeah, yeah. I think they're a stone fruit. I'm voting that they are also a pretty sexy fruit, perhaps not because of anything in Song of Achilles that makes them a sexy fruit. But I also want to put out their mangoes. Sorry, just quickly on the sexy fruit conversation. <laughs> Um, mangoes deserve to be on that list. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I agree, but also like, here's the thing is that having like cut mango, totally tropical, smooth, delicious, wonderful, tasty, sweet, um, cutting a mango or like trying to get the fruit. So gross. Purgatory. Such a mess. <laughs> and yeah. then like, also if you're like me and you're like, I gotta, I gotta get all the flesh off of yeah. this mango because it's delicious. And then you like on suck pit. on the pit a little bit and then you get all the strings in your teeth. Not oh, a good yeah. luck. You and I, Michael, we've lived the same life in that <laughs> situation. I'm I'm living a super bougie life because I've only bought the uh, the pre-sliced mango. I don't know that I've all actually right. ever. Yeah, all I know. Right. I know. Super bougie over here. Yeah. Ansel I Victoria mean, and her pre-packaged I'll see my, fruit. I'll see myself <laughs> out. Toast. Okay. <laughs> 
a segue. It's not a segue at all. But we were talking about all the stuff that happens on uh, Sky- Skyros. Sky- Skyros. Why are Greek these names? Greek Why words. Greek There's names. some of them I just won't even say. Greek I can't names like try. slip off of my brain in a way that I can't quite understand. Um, it's yep. a problem. Um, but uh, that is where we are well we've already technically been introduced to odysseus but we get actually introduced to odysseus because he and someone else uh one of the other kings comes to um to find achilles there and to bring achilles and patroclus to the war basically and And, wow yes wow he's i okay so becca you haven't read it uh circe yet but somehow she weaves this character because i mean spoiler i mean Odysseus is also in Circe. Um, it would be a crime if he wasn't, right? right? Like, he, like, yeah. he gets everywhere, right? You <laughs> That's the one thing everywhere. I know. <laughs> um, but uh, it's the same character. Yeah. She's just written. Oh, you disagree? Well, no, I don't disagree with you. This book, actually, I want to go back and reread Circe for many reasons, but the main one was Odysseus because I remember when I read Circe, I kind of hated Odysseus. Like, I didn't like him at all. Mm. And in this book, I was like, oh, he's slippery. He's slimy. I don't trust him as far as I can throw him, which would not be very far. But I do like him. Yeah. Well, because he's charming. And he was charming with Circe, too. We just started to hate him. But, you know, yeah. he didn't hurt our boys. He kind of tried to help him out in, in this story. But um, he, his humor, his wit, I just... I am so in awe of a figure that is so clear. I feel like when I read mythology, he's clear. When I read Miller's books, he's clear. He's a he is a a whole archetype. He's a whole character. He's a he's yes, he's a Camino del Arte figure. He is a whole stereotype, but so much more complex than that. Can I can I give you guys? I'm so sorry. This is a tiny tiny tangent. Go um, for it. I, from the moment we meet Odysseus in this book, in Song of Achilles, I had a little fan cast moment in my head. And this generally doesn't happen for me. Like I, when I read books, I don't really see celebrities as characters at all. Immediately, Odysseus became George Clooney. And I <gasps> have no idea why. Totally is, no. It not, is it not well, fitting? And, and let's be honest. It's very Ach- fitting. Achilles is Finnick O'Dare, whatever his name is. Yeah. What's oh, his, uh, I can't Sean? see. You know what I'm talking about. I was thinking. I would. Oh, see. I was thinking because I. I didn't really have a fan cast in mind, but the closest I can get is the dude who plays um, President Snow in the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Have you guys? Seen oh, that movie? yeah. Well, they're kind of the same. Oh, okay. It's definitely similar oh, archetypes. Oh, you're right. Okay, Finnick O'Dare. I got Sam you. Sam Claflin. That's his name. Sam Claflin. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, a yes to that fan cast of on both fronts, yes. Um, which is weird because, like, I actually don't think George Clooney is cool enough to be Odysseus. How really? he's written here, really? But he's the only person I can actually think of who, like, it, it is almost like almost there. You know what I mean? It's like kind of there. Maybe, maybe it was like ten years ago. I don't know. Yeah, um, he's a little old now. When I told Mark that, because Mark is a fan of like. You know the the what's the the what's the really famous movie? Is it literally just called Troy? Is that the one that's about? The oh movie? yeah, Mark's a really big fan of that movie and like associated media, right? So when I said George Clooney for Odysseus, he was like, absolutely not. He's too old, and I'm like, okay, but younger. Wait, who plays him in that? 
Oh, it's it's either no no. I'm thinking of somebody else. Hang on, I'll have to Google it. It's okay. I can I can look up the IMDb for Troy later. Uh, I just remember that was a big deal because who was it? It was um, the the young guy uh who is not young. Was it Orlando Bloom? Was that who everyone was jazzed about? They were like, oh, Orlando Bloom's gonna drop trial, man. He, he was he, <laughs> Orlando Bloom played um tr- Paris. Uh, Paris Paris. Yeah, yeah, and Brad Pitt played Achilles. That makes sense. That actually makes a lot of sense. Oh, I would love to. I'm, oh, and Bree Sayas is in it. Oh, I Sean would Bean. watch. Sean, 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 Sean Bean. Bean. Sean Bean, Sean Bean plays Odysseus. Sorry. Oh, okay. I mean, uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. He can be schmarmy. Um, but we're talking so much about Odysseus in all of these forms of media because yes, exactly that the like the archetype, the voice it comes through, and like these guys, they're in this scene for a while. And what I want to praise Madeline Miller once again for is her dialogue, the way that scene. I actually I I, I bookmarked a page uh, that is in that scene. So he's he's telling this like long-winded story at the dinner table about his wife and how he wooed her with their like marriage bed how he literally made a bed and it's like kind of tongue-in-cheek and his personality is really coming through i'm just gonna i'm gonna read i'm gonna read this little section here uh after so will you have me and she said quote the king of argos made a noise of disgust i'm sick to death of this tale about your marriage bed and perhaps you shouldn't have suggested i tell it But it's just like he's been telling this story and the whole start of this kind of came through at the beginning with like dignitary, like, oh, shall I tell you? Oh, do tell the tale, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then he's just like being nonsense. And he just like he does this like a couple of times where he just kind of like has the right way to needle someone. And she uh-huh. never tells you. It is always dialogue with Odysseus that tells you. And it's just like that personality, the way it comes through is is incredible it's again it's just like it's it's so incredible i would love to see one of her books from his perspective yeah he feels it he feels all-knowing he feels like um, omniscient like yes knows he's ahead of you a little bit even always yeah yeah well and we see that even in uh in the very first there's a scene at the very beginning that I don't think we really touched on yet where Patroclus is like, what, nine years old? And his dad takes him to try to be a suitor for the Helen, you know, the Helen that is eventually going to start all of this chaos by running off with Paris. Um, And it's like, obviously, it's not, it's mortifying for both of them. But he is, as a nine-year-old child, he is in the room with all of these kings and maybe sons of gods, right? And Odysseus is there to pull some shit, as Odysseus is one to do, and <laughs> to be like, I'm totally here to woo Helen, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, oh, actually, uh, I got here a day early and I had a meeting with the king and I'm going to marry his other daughter, so <laughs> bye. It genuinely, he's he's wonderful. And it's so interesting, right? Because this book, speaking of, Achilles' father made me hate men so much. And then it also made me love men so much. Like the emotions that she elicits, like I, I'm like choking back laughter while reading Odysseus. Yeah. 
and was it Diomedes like or diet diet his friend the one that starts with a d um and then I'm reading Agamemnon and I'm gonna throw my book across the room oh Agamemnon yeah this book made me confront the fact that men also contain multitudes <laughs> fine we'll say it here on this podcast men contain multitudes we'll be the first we'll be the brave ones I guess maybe <laughs> Ew, whatever oh. <laughs> but we've all met an Agamemnon who just oh, yes. angry all the time mm-hmm. oh when they were describing the reds of his cheeks when he would get so angry I was like, we all have encountered this person. We know him. We hate him. I'm just like a type of person who can go from being so cocky and so arrogant and so full of themselves to also in their really weak, sad, angry moments, be so insecure and so threatened by the littlest things. Um, Which, speaking of which, do we need to talk more about Odysseus or does that take us Perhaps. Oh, sorry, I let us astray. No, no, no we're good. that's okay. That's okay. I'm just really excited to like talk about the last half of the book, or maybe even like the last third of the book. Yeah, segue away. That's, that's where I felt really, really big, intense feelings. Yes. I was telling, I think both of you, or maybe one of you. I'm so sorry, I can't remember. I, I was basically, I was reading the last third of this book in bed one night, very late. And I was laying down and I had to get up and move to the living room couch because I was just sobbing. And I was like, I'm going to drown myself in my own snot and my own tears if I don't sit upright to read the last part of this book. Real sad, guys. We all knew it was coming, yeah. too. We all knew it was coming. Well, but, but we didn't know love, how it was coming. First love just wrecks you entirely. I mean, were we not all sitting here going, someone's going to hit him in the heel. Why haven't they brought up the heel? Achilles heel. It's a phrase. We all know it. His heel is his weak spot. And Achilles heel was Patroclus. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Like, it's so beautiful. But I, I, and this is a question I got to ask you guys. Should they have been together? Right? Because first love is complicated. Right? First love is like, messy and huge and gigantic and I know I've talked to you Victoria we both had first loves that you know effed us up a little bit can I say that on the podcast oh yeah we they, they messed yeah. us up right they hurt they hurt like crazy and you think you'll never recover and that's what they both experienced when they realized they were going to lose each other and, and when Achilles did lose Patroclus and I guess I was going to ask you know with the conflict they reached in that last scene I don't know. Do you think it's a tale of like doomed first love? Do you think it's a tale of soulmates? What do you think it is? It's so interesting that you, yeah, that you mention it from the perspective specifically of first love, because I think by the time we get to the end of the book, specifically, I think more so about the grief than I do about maybe their, their final big arguments between Achilles and Patroclus, but the grief that Achilles experiences about Patroclus's death and vice versa honestly like the grief that patroclus experiences watching achilles grieve and go through his final days to me felt like the kind of devastation of like almost like lifelong partners or soulmates Mm. that's more what it felt like to me like what yeah i i think (laughs) i was laying in bed next to my husband mark as i was reading all of that and that's when i was like yeah no i can't i need space (laughs) it feels too close and too real to the heart (laughs) i can't remember the specifics of the scene and just kind of like flipping through I 
I'm not sure I will find it again, but there is a moment where I think it's Patroclus talking. I forget who he's talking with. Um, and it's not Achilles, but he's talking about sort of these, these big grand questions of the weight of a mortal's life. Or maybe he's having a flashback to talking with Chiron about this, uh, about sort of being like uh, detachment in a certain sense, because, you know, you cannot weigh one human life against another human life in the grand yes. scheme of things. And so a life only means something if it means something to you. Yes. And so then there is this, okay, so is it right to save a life in order to, to or to to sacrifice a life to save a hundred or save the life of the person you love and sacrifice a hundred? And at the end of the day, the answer is there isn't an answer. It, both both are wrong it's and both train. are right. It's the trolley problem. Yeah. And and I think that your question about sort of like should they be together kind of comes into the same place where it's like for all of the pain that is caused, there is also so much joy. And think of the pain and isolation that would have been in their place had these two boys not found each other when they really just needed companionship and understanding in a world that did not have it for them. What do you think, Emily? Like, that's such a great question. I'm curious to hear what you what you think. I have been thinking about this a lot recently, partially because I have a friend that is going through a really devastating breakup. And I am also looking at engagement rings. So I'm thinking a lot about love these days and why we choose the people that we choose. And is there soulmates? Is that something that's real? Or do we just choose the person that we most need at the time in our life that we need them, you know, and, and this is such a beautiful story. And I love that he had, that Patroclus has this relationship with Briseis that he kind of is like, oh, and I, I could have had a life with you probably, but I have this other life and that's the one I'm living. Um, And so I, I think it's both. I think that it's in a totally different context maybe they this war would have broken them up and they would have become two different people and they would have gone in different directions with their lives in a in a world where they lived on the mountain with Chiron forever maybe they would have been you know the romantic couple that everyone dreams of being and i think that i think <laughs> i think that this book deals a lot in fate but it also deals a lot in how fate just kind of goes out the window sometimes. Like the gods, Thetis, was actively fighting against their relationship. And yet they ended up with their souls entwined in the end, in the underworld, with their names on the same slab of granite. And so I think there's an equal mixture of we we define our own fate and sometimes life moves us in directions that we didn't ask to be moved in, but that's what our lives become, you know? Yeah. It's poetry. It's a it's a gorgeous story. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting how particularly Achilles, and I guess by extension, you could say the exact same thing about Patroclus, but Achilles has this very clearly defined prophecy that he is set to fulfill, right? And I'm kind of shifting a little bit into this idea of fate that you were talking about, Emily, but also just the idea of free will kind of within fate. 
I I think we all knew how the story was going to end, right? Because of the prophecy. But at the same time, I think that Achilles and Patroclus both do a good amount of exerting their own free will, if you want to call it that, or their own will onto their fate and on what's supposed to happen to them. And I think that all things considered, they, they made a great love and they made a great life out of you know, what they were given and what they were told had to happen. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have a question. What perspective in the book do you most relate with? Because while you're answering that, I thought of, I feel like I, as soon as I introduced Briseis, I am like right there with her. I'm like, Patroclus, you are too good for this guy. You got to leave him. Like he is so prideful he's so arrogant he's gotten everything he's ever wanted and he doesn't care like you are the best of the Greeks not him like you know I I was starting to get pretty angry at Achilles at the end um and I honestly like I think that's also probably why I brought that conversation earlier because I was not so sure I wanted Patroclus to forgive him because I was mad what what perspectives did you guys feel like you related to? I mean, personally, like I, especially after you've just given the whole Briseis, like you should have been best of the Greek, blah, blah, blah thing. I feel a little haughty saying this, but like, I think that Patroclus is like self, um, uh, self-critical and like sort of like self-deflating nature is something that I really identified with. Yeah. And the way that he just kind of like looks at everything and is like, I'm never going to be good enough for that, but at least I can observe or at least I can help or, you know, whatever. And the way that he sort of adores Achilles and sort of like, he doesn't even aspire to Achilles. He just looks at him and appreciates him the way you would like a work of art. Um, yeah. But also I don't, but not in like a shallow way either. So it's, it's more than that. Yeah. I could be who he is. Yeah. Yeah. He, he looks at, he sees Achilles for everything that everyone else is too blind by his like God likeness to see like everybody else is blinded by how beautiful and graceful and strong Achilles is. And Patroclus sees Achilles for the the man part of him, the, the mortal, the human part of him. And for like the, the softness and the care and, and the way he cared for him, for Patroclus. I, um, I love that speech. I love I love that moment that Briseis has when she's like, no, fuck you. He it's was so, so much good. better than you. And especially seeing his growth in the camp because they're at war for like 10 years or whatever. More than almost. And so Patroclus becomes uh, part of like the medic team. He becomes basically like the surgeon uh, because he's good at it. And um Learns everyone's names. Exactly. He's like, he knows the people in camp, which is why it is grieving him so much when Achilles stops fighting and the Greeks start losing because he's like, it's not about Agamemnon. I don't give a fuck about that guy and his honor. What I care about is that the men whose names I know are dying. That they, like, right? And like, yeah, I think that they this book, again, it does such a beautiful job of showing their relationship because like, if Patroclus were there hearing Briseis say that, he would be like, no, you don't understand. He is so much better than me. He understands me. He is the only reason that I am here, alive, today, existing. But 
I totally see Perseus's position because I too would be like, what you just this 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 airhead this guy who is just sulking and not doing anything and letting everybody die because of his honor like who didn't save me even you know like knowing full well he didn't give a fuck about her either like Um, i totally see her perspective and i get why she would say that and like i i agree that someone needed to tell achilles that i also know that patroclus is the only one who could have yeah you know what i mean like the book leaves you with no qualms about that (laughs) and isn't that love isn't that like trusting someone to be able to see all the worst parts of you and still love you and also be the one that can tell you stop this you're being an idiot yeah um i have like one more kind of juicy ish thing i kind of want to get into not juicy juicy just like a thing i want to bring up but also okay i want to bring up fetus yeah. yeah, okay. I was actually curious if anybody wanted to talk about Thetis, but I was also curious if we could have a super mini quick conversation about Achilles and Priam. Yeah. Oh my God. We can have as many conversations. Oh yeah. Oh my God. We have to talk about Priam. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, oh, I'm forgetting Priam. What's Priam? Priam is um, the father of, um, oh my God, the soldier that uh, Patroclus he- kills. Hector. Oh, oh, Hector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. No that's my bad Patri- uh, Priam is yes the father of Hector and Patroclus is oh, what killed him. Achilles yeah. kills him yeah yes yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you want to jump in on that yeah, yeah. just quickly because I think it relates to what you've been asking us Emily again a really awesome question thank you yeah. um about perspectives and like who we identify with because honestly um not specifically as it relates just to the Priam thing but like Achilles the description of Achilles that we get after Patroclus's death um, is I feel like a very animalistic one. Like Achilles kind of just becomes this like feral grieving thing. Um, and I related to that so much, not because I have yet experienced a loss, I think that is as profound or on the same level as the one that, that Achilles experiences in, you know, the love of his life. But I think that Last October, my grandfather passed, and that was the first family member and the first person in my life for me that I would say, like, it's like one of my first, like, big deaths, I guess, and I'm very fortunate at the age that I'm at to be able to say that, right? Um, But that, like, feral sense of just, like, I feel nothing but, but grief, which is also encompassed by sadness and anger and misery and like all of these things that you feel so hard in your body i i think that i was really like feeling for achilles and and the, the descriptions of like achilles like holding patroclus's body way after his body should have been gotten rid of and like achilles knows patroclus is not in that body anymore but like he is holding on to it I, this is the part where i'm like gotta get out of bed i'm weeping excuse me um but then we get to Priam, right? Priam, father of Hector, um, arguably one of the more important like enemy kings, right? Who is this old, tired man um, who sneaks to Achilles' camp in the dead of night and comes to ask Achilles if he can have Hector's body back to give it a proper burial, right? Um, and this is after Achilles has killed Hector and has been like parading Hector's dead body around and like dragging literally it dragging it behind a chariot, like the yeah. cruelest thing you can do to a corpse. 
Yeah, and this is while this is while Achilles has still got Patroclus's stinky little corpse in the corner um, of his tent, and Priam comes back and is like, you know, I fully acknowledge that you could kill me just for being here. Um, I'm your enemy, and I respect it. I also fully respect that you may not kill me, but you may let me go and not give me my son's body back, and that's okay. But I just, you know, as one grieving man to another, I come to ask you for this. And I ask you to please let me put my son to rest because he doesn't deserve to wander the earth uh, lost, which is part of the like ancient Greek belief around the dead, right? You have to, which is also such a great storytelling piece that Madeline Miller uses to keep Patroclus in the story after he's dead. Okay, so yes, yes, yes. Interrupt me, interrupt me, please. Yeah, no, just the the forgiveness and the it's it it makes the enemy human that scene yeah becca say what you're gonna say that's the the juicy thing i wanted to bring up was the way in which she incorporated the afterlife um because i think it is something that is really hard for those of us who were like raised in a christian culture i think sometimes to get your head around uh, other other sort of types of afterlife in mythology and stuff. It's not like just a hell. And the idea that like, until your body has been appropriately ritually laid to rest, you do not have access to that, which does kind of carry over into different traditions still. But, and the way that she handles that, and there's just like, there's a couple of lines where she where she is still telling the story from Patroclus's perspective after he has died and he is talking about like Achilles like laying his head on his stomach and he's like and I'm but I'm not really there like I'm I'm in the wind I am like pressing as hard as I can but I am nothing and he knows mm-hmm. that and like it it does it does um it intensifies that grief in a way that I was not anticipating. You know, I've read stories where you're like, ah, yes, the hero has lost everything and therefore can now go be vicious. Um, But having that essence still telling the story and that essence so desperately wanting to comfort this, uh, this sort of beast that has been made in his absence. um, Yeah. It just, it's, fucking incredible it's so good and and honestly like the the grief in the afterlife the way Thetis deals with it also as an immortal knowing it seemed like there was an opportunity that maybe Achilles could have become immortal but then was kind of just like damned to this like mortal death um and the gods I mean they're puppet masters right like they and they're puppet masters with her because she's a lesser god, right? She's just a nymph. Shout out Circe. We all know about the nymphs. Like, it's rough out there. And they are these puppet masters and they don't care about, you know, they don't care about that girl that they sacrifice on the altar to make the wind blow again. And they don't, they don't care about all the people that die in the plague when Apollo is angry. And like, they, they don't care about any of these people. But Thetis cares about this person and the conversations that she can have with uh, Patroclus, who is in this in-between, this uh, to use like, you know, the Christian language, like the purgatory, right? Like the mm-hmm. in-between 
the end, the afterlife and, and the, you know, being alive. And I love that I hated her because I forgot that she was a mother and she was a woman that had been raped and a woman that had been abused. And I forgot that, you know, yes, she's homophobic. She's trying to protect her son and she has very little trust in men, rightfully so. Yeah. Um, And so that, that part at the end, when she's talking to Patroclus and she finally kind of the end of her, probably not the end of her grieving process, but an important part of her grieving process is letting Patroclus go with Achilles. Yes. That's the part that made me cry. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I also felt like I really despised Thetis throughout most of the story because of all the things that you just said, Emily. And I think that the way that Madeline Miller has Patroclus speak about Thetis throughout the story is so good at sort of like dehumanizing her a little bit for that moment at the end, at least in my opinion. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that Patroclus obviously has like a perhaps anachronistic respect for women. I don't know. Um, throughout the the story, which is great. Um, and and he sh- clearly shows a lot of empathy and care for the women that he bears witness to throughout the whole story, except for Thetis. Like, he is, like, afraid of her. He is sort of reverent of his fear for her, but I don't know that he really admires her or respects her in the same way because he just so actively disagrees with her on how she shows love and care and protection for Achilles. Um and so then at that at the end, that moment, that switch that happened for me anyway, of just like being kind of in awe of her a little bit and in awe of how she has loved this this boy so much, her son, and maybe not always in like the quote healthiest or best ways, right? She's a she's a lesser goddess. I don't know. Um, her son is a demigod. But yeah, I think the longer I sit with it, she's one of the characters that I'm actually coming away from this liking the most. Who I, It's like quite a 180. She definitely is one of the characters I'm the most fascinated by. And again, like that moment where she does... Um, for, for those listening who haven't read this, there is a thing like at the end after Achilles dies also, he is given like a, a monument and his son, who comes back into the story explicitly forbids Patroclus's name from Ugh. being on it, which is the what sun. is explicitly keeping him sort of from Achilles in the afterlife. And so it is this like huge kind of moment of graciousness from Thetis where she's coming to visit Achilles' grave. She can't escape Patroclus there in his sort of ethereal form. And so she adds his name herself as a way of saying like this is my generosity please go you can go be free together um i think there is something about achilles is her son and now she has a grandson who she also had a hand in raising and is like part god or whatever and he sucks he's the worst uh he's worse than agamemnon and that's saying a lot and like she got to raise him though the way she kind of wanted her half mortal son was not taken from her to be raised among mortals like achilles was uh pyrrha is what they call him right he was raised by her under the sea and he sucks he's the worst yes um 
And I kind of wonder if there is maybe a little bit of her, I mean, she's a demigod, so maybe not, this isn't super represented, but like, I do kind of wonder if there is even amongst the gods, or at least the ones who have those types of relationships with mortals, an ability to be like, oh, maybe, uh, maybe raising a kid to think he's a god and then thrusting him into the middle of a bunch of mortals is, um, not great. (laughs) Not great. Well, and he just like, I also think, I, I don't know how much he interacted with Daedamia, his, his biological mother. Right. Um, but she, she went through it. And I think the passing down of family trauma, like in seeing the way that family trauma affects people down the line creates a lot of empathy for me, you know, like I think he is dirt of the earth and just terrible, awful. But I also see that he just had a rough situation in in a huge way, you know? Well, and I'm sure that, like, to stay on the empathy train for, like, 0.5 seconds for this kid, uh, Pyrus, is that how you say his name? Pyra, I think. Pyra. Or, Pyra. or Pyrus. Oh, shit. The Pyra the one. Son. Yeah, Achilles' son. I'm sorry. I was trying to say his name. Um, To stay on the empathy train for him for just a minute, I'm sure, too, that, like, regardless of what his upbringing looked like, all that boy probably had to hear growing up was, your dad, your dad, he's the best. He's the best of the Greeks. You'll never measure up, or you have to measure up, all of that, right? Like, what what a shadow and what a weight to grow up under. So, like, not an excuse for his terrible behavior, but also, yikes would not be fun as a child. To live I think in that. that sometimes with books, I feel like I walk away and I went, okay, those were a bunch of fake humans. Those were a bunch of like, you kind of gave them human qualities, but they're all sort of stereotypes and none of them have like all the, the goodness and evilness that, that people have inside of them at the same time. And this was a book that I read that I was like, oh, some of the it's fiction it's you know greek mythology and those are humans those are humans with all the complexities that humans carry okay i have two things i have two quick things i want to my last two quick things one a thing i neglected to say earlier about sort of the trajectory of this story and the way what i loved about it is that all of the beats of the trojan war that you think you know they are like a sentence in this book. And it is they're like, and the horse. Yeah. They're like, oh, there's a horse over there. Oh, uh, yeah, that guy Paris. Ah, you know, oh, Hector, he's on the field again. It's not like scene after scene of these long drawn out battles. You know, it's not uh, Achilles dragging the body gratuitously, like in detail. It's like that's happening and it's fucked up. Um and instead, we are seeing all of these nuances of humanity in between, right? Amazing. Okay. My other thing, this is my my closing thought, um, is that I want to read an, another little section from our boy Odysseus. And this is at the end when he is talking about fame to uh, Achilles' son. Um, okay, okay, I'll give some context so I don't have to read the whole page. Basically, Odysseus is telling Achilles' son, hey, Patroclus meant a lot to him. You should put him on the tombstone. And uh, 
the son is just like, no, screw him. He didn't do anything himself. He's a commoner. I don't know him. He sucks. Goodbye. And says he has none of his own fame. It was all my father's fame. Odysseus inclines his head. True, but fame is a strange thing. Some men gain glory after they die, while others fade. What is admired in one generation is abhorred in another. He spread his broad hands. We cannot say who will survive the Holocaust of memory. Who knows? He smiles. Perhaps one day even, I will be famous. Perhaps more famous than you. I doubt it. Odysseus shrugs. We cannot say. We are men only. A brief flare of the torch. Those who come may raise us or lower us as they please. Patroclus may be such as will rise in the future. The end. I mean, that's not the end of the book. That's the end of the quote. Uh, but I just think that that in the book uh, says says a lot of what we've been saying in in uh, in a way that I just really liked. And also, at that point, you're so ready for that kid to get punched in the face that you're just like, yeah, yeah Odysseus, I'll take this verbal slap. Oh, it feels good. Yes. Yeah. And I there's something I always say to my friends. It's something I had to learn a couple years ago is... In somebody's story, you're going to be the hero. And in somebody's story, you're going to be the villain. And that took me forever to accept because I am a people pleaser. And I want people to like yep. me so badly. So badly I want them to like me. But I've had to do things in my life that have made people not like me. And those were the right decisions. And those kind of like, you don't get to decide like what story is written about you. And there will be a million stories written about you from all different perspectives. And it, it, I don't know, it doesn't matter. It's about the shadows in the underworld at the end, I think. I don't think it's about the stories that people tell about you. Because Patroclus isn't talked about and he's the best of the Greeks. Well, he will be now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks, Madeline this, Miller. As for this podcast, Patroclus is the best of the Greeks. We stand Patroclus. Yes. <laughs> <We've merged. laughs> and figs. And figs. figs. Once I've tried one, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> or at least the aesthetic, right? Oh my gosh. We need to do a reunion about Cersei, guys. And Becca, you need to have tried figs by the time we, we talk about Cersei. Okay. Oh my gosh. I don't know how Cersei feels after Song of Achilles because you like Odysseus and then... Won't get into it, but he's a little different. In that All right. One. I mean, I like Odysseus, but as Victoria said, I still don't trust Odysseus. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah this is normally where I'm like, you want to plug anything uh, for my mom huh. to look up? But uh, if you don't. That's if funny. You... <laughs> no, I, I don't have much to plug, but I don't know. Go be nice to people. That's a and... good plug. Yeah. I love that plug. I want you to do. And uh, go eat a fig. Wait, I'll plug figs. hey read this is hosted and produced by becca howell and victoria aslanides our theme music was composed by james allen to find more of their work go to jamesallencomposer.com Thanks for listening.